Join eMarketer on November 3rd for our next virtual event, Attention, Trends and Predictions for 2024. Our leading analysts and executives from brands like Pepsi, Colgate-Palmolive, and Kendra Scott will explore trends like generative AI, retail media, and more to help professionals plan for the year ahead. Visit insiderintelligence.com slash events slash summit to register today. Hello, listeners. Today is Wednesday, October 4th. Welcome to Behind the Numbers, Reimagining Retail, an eMarketer podcast. This is the show where we talk about how retail collides with every part of our lives. I'm your host, Sarah Lebo. Today's episode topic is what makes a good store? First, let's meet today's guests. Joining me for this episode, we have senior analyst Zach Stambor. Welcome back, Zach. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Sarah. And also rejoining us is podcast regular senior analyst Sky Canavis. Hey, Sky. Hey, Sarah. It's great to be back. Great to have you. Okay, let's get started with free sample. Our Did You Know segment, where I share a fun fact, tidbit, or question. Today, I am once again quizzing you both. The question is... What will be the most popular children's costume this Halloween, according to the National Retail Federation? Most popular children's costume. I'm not giving you guys any options. Guess them yourselves. I'm going to go with the classic that my daughter was last year, and that is a witch. A witch? Oh, I guess. I was going to say Barbie. There's just been so much Barbie stuff going on. It seems like a natural, easy costume. I think that will be huge this year. But from my memory of these surveys or studies, the classics are really hard to unseat. The Witch Ghost Superhero Trilogy, I think maybe there are a few others in there. You both are giving really well-reasoned answers. It's not Barbie. I also thought it would be Barbie. I was Barbie last year. And you better believe, since I still own the shirt, I'll just do it again this year. But the answer is Spider-Man. Around 2.6 million children plan to be Spider-Man this Halloween. 2 million plan to be a princess. 1.6 million will be a ghost. 1.5 million will be a superhero. And 1.4 million will be a witch. That's according (laughs) to the NRF. Zach, Sky, you both have kids. Do they have their Halloween costumes picked out yet? We get several Halloween costumes a year because Halloween is no longer the day as it was when I was a child. It is a season. It's Halloween. It's Hallow Month. <laughs> yeah, we start with the parties kind of in middle of October and the planning starts oh in September God. to, you know, secure those in-demand witch costumes. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, we already have candy corn in the house, but we do not yet have costumes. I don't know what they're going to be. Okay, you'll have to keep us posted on what your kids and you are going as this Halloween month. Okay, now it's time for our next segment. Retell me this, retell me that. Where we discuss an interesting retail topic. Today's topic is what makes a good store? Let's start with an example here of a trend we've been seeing. Macy's is shrinking its store footprint size and also shrinking some of its individual store sizes. We've also seen similar smaller store concepts in other places like Ikea, which has opened smaller showrooms. The trend aims at refocusing what the store actually is. 
So before we jump in, just any thoughts on this overall trend? Yeah, I think it reflects the ways in which consumers live and work has changed. The pandemic shifted everything around. People live in different locations and stores need to serve them in different ways because of that. And I also think the smaller store formats speak to a different role for the store where they're not just a place to go and get products, but nowadays stores serve as much to drive awareness and acquire new customers as they do to sell products. So especially for brands in more lifestyle-oriented categories, I think stores can be part of that marketing strategy where they also serve to develop the brand's image and reputation and offer, you know, just to get in front of the consumers and be where consumers are. Yeah. Last week we talked about Omnichannel. I think that many years ago, you might have called the store the definition of the bottom of the funnel. It's where the sale, the transaction takes place. Now, not as much. The store might be a more mid-funnel marketing opportunity. So stores can exist because they fulfill a need or because they want to draw people in with some sort of entertainment or experience or exclusivity. Let's start with this first category of fulfilling a need. What are the things that make stores need to have? I think the top reason cited by consumers in numerous surveys is really the need to see things in person. So they want to touch or try or feel the items. There was a recent survey from Jungle Scout looking at consumer trends, and that was really the top reason. It's also followed closely by the need for to get something right away. If you can't wait for even the one or two days for a fast delivery and you need it now, you go to a store. But the third reason, and this was interesting, was just enjoyment of shopping in person. So there are people who look to stores for look around, somewhere to go, be entertained. I think the convenience piece is really an underrated part of the equation here. You tend to think of e-commerce as the easiest, most convenient way to buy something. But when you need a birthday present for a birthday party that you're taking your kids to in like one hour, you really just need to run to the store and grab (laughs) something and go. Zach, I actually had a similar experience last weekend, but I took the opposite approach. So I urgently needed a present for a birthday party I was taking my daughter to because her dad gave her the present to open herself. So she opened the gift I had already bought for her friend. And we we need, yeah, so we needed an emergency gift. But rather than go to a store, I did Walmart curbside pickup and just did not have to go into the store. I ordered online and got it within a couple of hours and saved the day. <laughs> but you still went to the store. You know, the the store still served to that function, even if you didn't have to go. Yes. In. Yes. I think understanding what store roles are like need to have. I mean, look no further than retail e-commerce sales penetration data. We know that food and beverage has some of the lowest e-commerce penetration at like 7%, according to our forecast, whereas books, music, and video have closer to 70% e-commerce penetration. So the stores need to have in those touch it, see what that Apple looks like. Whereas for a book or something, a store needs to do more to sort of get people to want to come in through something experiential or some sort of event. And to me, bookstores are hugely experiential because I still have not matched the online browsing experience with the experience of being in a bookstore and being able to see all of the titles and pick up a book and see what it's about. And 
So to me, I feel like I purchase fewer books online than I did when I used to go to bookstores regularly. Yeah, stores foster discoverability as well. And that's just something that never has fully been replicated online. I think that eases us into sort of our next, what is the role of the store question? So we've got these need to have things, seeing things in person, trying things on, picking things out for yourself. But then we have these want to have things. What are these aspects that make people want to go into the store? Browsing, discoverability, that's definitely one of them. So one thing is exclusive merchandise that you just can't get anywhere else. And then the other is that real entertainment value piece of the equation where there's a real experience to the store that brings you into the brand in a way that just isn't possible without engulfing you within the ethos of the brand. Bass Pro Shops is a great example of that sort of retailer that does that very well. Have either of you been to the Bass Pro Shops Pyramid in Memphis? I've not. No, that's a bit far from me. But I did go to the Bass Pro Shops in my neighborhood in the suburb of Austin, Texas this past weekend for research purposes. I took my daughter along. We did not buy anything, but she had a great time. There's a big aquarium. There were little animal tracks inside the cement on the flooring, and she really enjoyed following those and pretending to be the animals of the tracks. And they have a bowling alley with an underwater aquarium theme and a bar and a restaurant in there. So in terms of customer acquisition, I think it worked because I'm likely to go back there. Maybe I'll need to buy something outdoorsy or maybe just to go bowling and have a meal. Yeah, it's like the Rainforest Cafe of retailers. Well, I guess minus the mall aspect, right? Because they're freestanding. Mm -hmm. So it has even more pressure than the Rainforest Cafe to have a way to draw people in, be that through aquariums or through being quite literally shaped like a pyramid. But that notion of building an experience that is really somewhat of a tourist destination isn't really new. I live in Chicago, and I remember as a kid, Nike Town opened on Michigan Avenue in 1992, and there was... Hordes of people just descended on this store that I think was like three or four stories. It's still there. And you just got immersed in the brand and in everything Nike and everything Michael Jordan. And it positioned the brand in a different way. And that has only accelerated. Well, I think it has but taken on more resonance in yeah. this kind of post-pandemic period that we're in where e-commerce accelerated, more people were shopping at home. They lost the experiences of the stores. And for some people, they really miss the store experience. So now they want to get back to stores, but they want to have great experiences in stores. They want something different that they can't just find online. And stores have been actually, I think, pretty challenged to meet these expectations. A lot of that is because of the staffing issues. And, you know, to have a great store experience, it really needs to start with the people working there and, you know, maintaining the store and being there to for customers. That's a good transition into this question of like, what keeps people out of stores? What are the pain points? One is definitely staffing. That's definitely one that's particularly relevant right now as a labor shortage wages on. Lack of staff and lack of staff that are familiar with the merchandise, that are trained in what they're talking about. I called this to both of you the Home Depot effect. You're in a store, you have a question, and no one is around to answer it. Or if they can answer it, they don't have the answer. 
Right. I think some of the pain points are around not being able to find what they're looking for or get help to find what they're looking for. And then another big one is other people, crowds and long lines, the inconveniences of the stores. But also untrained staff that just don't know what they're talking about. Nothing is more frustrating that then you went to the store to get a very specific question answered and then they just shrug or you can tell that it, they just don't really know what they're talking about. That's like a really bad experience that might just send you elsewhere. Yeah, I'm sure that's an incredibly frustrating experience for the worker and for the visitor. It's just like all around a challenging time. OK, let's keep moving into our second half. Now it's time for pop up rankings where we take a look at specific examples and we rank them. Today, Zach and Sky will discuss four must-visit stores and one store that could up its in-person game. Zach, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, so I want to start by talking about the consumer electronics category and three separate retailers within that that all do similar things well. These are highly considered purchases where you do want a store associate who knows everything there is to know about the products. So in Chicago, we have a retailer that just has one store. It's called App. And if you live in the Chicago land area, you undoubtedly buy like literally every consumer electronics, every appliance from App because their associates know everything. They have such a wealth of knowledge and they work at App forever. They train their employees really well and they just have a wealth of knowledge. B&H in New York is a similar sort of experience, but really all you have to do is go to your local mall and you can find the Apple store where, again, they pay their employees well, they train them well, and as a result, you get a very high-touch experience that enables you to feel good about this pretty expensive thing that you're likely buying. Yeah. The last time I was in an Apple store, one of their employees was talking to me about how came in with no knowledge of technology and was a super user at that point because of the training. I think it's interesting. You brought up earlier like the store as a tourist destination. The first time I ever visited New York City, where I now live in like 2008, the Apple store had like just recently opened on Fifth Avenue, the, the Cube Apple store. And I like specifically visited there. I didn't buy any Apple products. They were prohibitively expensive for me at the time. But obviously I became intimately familiar with Apple because now I'm talking to you on an Apple computer using my Apple smartphone. So I mean that like lifelong brand familiarity that that started at that point definitely has paid off for Apple. Yeah, every store is a billboard and uh, a marketing opportunity. Sky, why don't you give us the next example of a must-visit store? Sure. This one is a smaller retailer called Camp, and they could be described as a kid's store. They're not a toy store because they're so much more. They build themselves as a family experience company, and they're pretty small. They have nine stores from what I saw on their website most recently, and they're in big cities around the country. And I describe them more as like a children's experience company. So toys are part of the childhood experience, of course, but so is entertainment and things like arts and crafts. And camp offers all of these through their different offerings and different offerings in different stores. 
So I think one of the most powerful and engaging things that they do is they have these immersive experiences that they have in select stores, and they're developed through partnerships with some of the big heavyweights of children's content. So think Disney, Bluey, Paw Patrol, and these are events that they create around them that are ticketed events. So last year, I took my daughter to the Encanto store at one of the camp stores in New York City, and it had all these really like nicely done themed rooms. The characters were there singing and dancing and playing games with kids. And it was just a great way to spend a couple of hours. It was like a very Disney-like type of experience where you don't have to take a whole trip to Florida or California to experience that kind of delight for kids. And yes, they sell toys and other things. But I think that they're really getting to the heart of what experiential retail can be. And especially in a category like toys, where we've seen so many of the big retailers like Toys R Us go into bankruptcy or really struggle a lot because of the dominance of online channels for toys. Do they do birthday parties at camp? I think they might. I'm not sure. I know that they have classes. They do things like parents' night out where you can drop your kids off for an evening and they'll do fun activities with them while parents go out and have a date or something like that. And um, I think they might do – I don't know that they do oh, birthday they parties. Do. But they do. This yeah. is so cute. Oh, they call yeah. the leaders of birthday parties party counselors. Oh. That's fun. Birthday parties are a great idea for a retailer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean – Talk about a challenging thing to leave without buying something. Yes, that was a struggle when we went to New York because we don't live there. We were coming back to Texas, and after we left the Encanto experience, my daughter fell in love with a toy that was not going to fit in our luggage, and there were tears. There was a struggle. She did eventually get it for Christmas a few months later. Did you order it like via e-commerce? I did. I ordered it from probably Target because they had the lowest price. Yes. Okay. So great store, Mm -hmm. but didn't get the conversion that time. But they did get us to buy tickets for Encanto and, you know, maybe buy some other merch as well. Gotcha. Zach, what is our next example of a successful in-store experience? Yeah. So far less flashy, but Whole Foods. It's just I love going grocery shopping and shopping at Whole Foods as opposed to like my neighborhood Albertson store, which is Jewel, because I can grab a beer, I can walk around, I can get samples. If I'm hungry, I can grab a slice of pizza or something else. And again, you can actually touch and feel and pick the produce that is pretty good produce. And that's just such a different experience than like in the height of the pandemic when I was ordering online and having it delivered and you never knew what was going to show up. And it wasn't fun. Yeah, I loved Whole Foods when I was growing up in the suburbs, especially for their prepared food section. Now that I live in the city, a totally different experience. It's shaped weird. It's so crowded. I get what you're saying. I I agree with you. I think that the city offers its own unique set of in-store challenges. Yes, absolutely. All right, Sky. Tell us one more store with a must-visit experience. So to me, this is must-visit, but it's not a specific store. And I'm going to say the nearest luxury pop-up. 
And I think pop-ups in general can be really powerful for any brand. Maybe it's tied to specific events or holidays or collaborations with other brands because they can really add an element of excitement or freshness to brands, especially for brands or retailers that are struggling with their existing stores. They kind of take them out of their typical setting and can cast them in a fresh light. Now, for luxury brands, they can often have a little more mass appeal. So like, for example, your typical luxury boutique, your Hermes boutique can be very intimidating and you know, particularly if you're just looking for a retail experience as entertainment or you want to browse around or be inspired. So what a lot of luxury brands are doing nowadays is opening these limited time pop-up shops where it's really specific to perhaps a specific product category. So a couple I'm thinking of is Chanel recently had a Chanel Lucky Chance Diner in Brooklyn, New York during New York Fashion Week, which was tied to its Chance fragrance. And it was open to the public. And I think they had pretend food and they had real food. And it was very Instagrammable or maybe now TikTokable <laughs> for young people to go check out and really have kind of that brand experience without walking into a Chanel boutique when they might not have a lot of money to spend on a handbag. I know this diner. I walked by this diner <laughs> a bunch of times and I did not realize it was open during New York Fashion Week. That said, during New York Fashion Week, I'm intimidated by everything and everyone. But yeah, I, I did see this diner. I, w- I wish I knew it was open because it, it does sound interesting. It's in a diner that I call the Step Up Diner because it was featured in the movie ah. Step Up to the Streets <laughs> very briefly. Yeah. So another one that was very popular was in China, which is a big hotbed of retail innovation right now. But Over the past couple of months, Louis Vuitton has opened a series of bookshops in coffee shops, and they're just selling their travel books. And I think one of the enticements was that if you bought one of their travel books, you would get a free tote bag. And this kind of sparked a viral craze among Chinese aspirational luxury shoppers because the travel book is expensive for a book, but it's nowhere near the price of a Louis Vuitton handbag. And some even went to all the shops that they could to buy different books so that they could collect all of the tote bags. So in this sense, these pop-ups kind of make luxury a bit more accessible, which is important now because I think the demand for luxury goods is slowing a bit among those more middle class or aspirational consumers, but the brands still want to stay front and center, especially in front of younger consumers while maintaining the exclusivity of their stores, their boutiques. Yeah, I I saw something that combined the last two that you brought up, Sky, the pop-up and the toy store, I saw a TikTok of a jelly cat, like the little stuffed animals, a jelly cat diner experience at FAO Schwartz in New York City. Another place I went on that first ever visit to New York where they had this like fake diner where you could buy your like food, but the pizza is like a stuffed pizza and jelly cat. And it made for really good TikTok content. So that's definitely another advantage of this. Right. And that will broaden the audience as well because jelly cats are popular not just with small children, but also with teens and Gen Z. I I think even maybe even millennials collect them. I love Um, them. Yes. I only have one. It's a lemon. The day I found (laughs) out about them, I was like, wow, amazing. A small stuffed lemon. Perfect. (laughs) 
Okay, let's keep moving. Zach, why don't you tell us our example of an in-store experience that could up its game just a bit? So I want to talk about Italy, which is rapidly expanding. And so this take is certainly not shared by the VC firm that owns Italy. But I remember when Italy opened in 2010 in New York, and it was a revelation. It was so cool. There was a brew pub. It was maybe the first or one of the first sort of food hall experiences that that I ever went to. And, you know, 13 years later, those things don't seem so special. Mm -hmm. And so it just brings to mind the need to like up the ante a bit and create something new and unique and special. And given that yeah, I think New York has three or soon will have three Italy's. Chicago is one. Philadelphia is soon to have one. Maybe having one in a city makes it sort of special. But once you've been there one time, I don't know that you want to go back unless something changes a bit. I agree with you on this maybe hot, maybe not so hot take. I think that one of the reasons that Italy feels a little dated is because these specialty food stores, international food stores, are more common now, at least in cities. Like my local coffee shop sells specialty and international food products. So does my local pizza shop. And I I know that that's common now. Like that's definitely a thing that is happening more and more. So I don't have to go to Italy, which to me is a crowd. I mean, when I think of Italy, I think of a crowd. Yeah, that's the other thing is it like pretty much is just a tourist destination, which in 2010, it certainly was that. But I don't think it was exclusively that. I think that's what's changed. At the same time, I think the combination that they offer of dining place and shopping place is very powerful and one that I think more supermarkets and grocery chains are will try to leverage. I know we've, we, I see my local chain here, HEB, they're expanding their kind of dine-in or restaurant offerings in their newer supermarkets, in their, in their newer stores. So I think that's kind of a lasting trend. But right, as it becomes more prevalent or widespread, the unique appeal of a place like Italy becomes diminished somewhat. Maybe they need to start offering samples. I mean, dining and shopping experience, it's worked for Ikea, which is a totally different category, (laughs) but has that international and dining appeal, that special occasion appeal. Okay, that is all we have time for today. So thank you for joining me, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you, Skye. Thank you, Sarah. Always a pleasure. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at behindthenumbers underscore podcast. Thank you to our listeners and to Victoria, who edits the podcast, no matter what we have in store for her. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of Reimagining Retail and eMarketer podcast. And tomorrow, join Marcus for another episode of the Behind the Numbers Daily. Do you guys like candy corn? Just wondering. Not at all. I, I don't eat it. I am team candy corn, only a little for Halloween, just to taste the a lot of nostalgia with candy corn. I'm also team candy corn, only a little. Like, I like having the bowl there and eating too. 
It's so waxy. Yeah, I don't want a candy corn milkshake or candy corn donuts or anything else with candy corn. Just a few pieces. It's just wax and sugar. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, no, really? No, thank you. It's just corn syrup, actually. <laughs> 